Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. We're going to spend some time now on the issue of uh, the fires. And please don't, I just tweeted this, don't tie yourselves in knots over the use of the word wildfires. I've seen emails, just absolutely people outraged. How can you call it a wildfire? Okay, so let's do this. Cambridge Dictionary. This is how the Cambridge Dictionary defines wildfire. A fire that is burning strongly and out of control on an area of grass or bushes in the countryside. That's it. That's it. A fire that is burning strongly and out of control on an area of grass or bushes in the countryside. That is it. Please settle down. You're going to blow your main blood vessels. Good grief. Uh, Professor Michael Mehta joins us from Thompson Rivers University in Kamloops in British Columbia. We've had the uh, privilege to speak with Professor Mehta in the past about the issue of uh, the danger of the smoke from these fires. And this is something he specializes in. Uh, Professor Mehta, good to have you back with us. Let me just ask you, given where you are, how are you? I'm fine, Roy. Today is actually a little bit of a reprieve here in Kamloops. Although we are surrounded by fire and smoke, uh, I'm thinking more of the Johnny Cash song, Ring of Fire, in this case. Uh, and it is, of course, all across our province and in many right. other provinces, right. as you know. How much of a direct threat is it to the, to the uh, city of and neighborhoods of Kamloops? Um, I put it at actually fairly high. It's uh, less than 10 kilometers away. And as we saw with the, Cam- the Kelowna fires, uh, 10 kilometers isn't very much when no. the winds are blowing. And, of course, uh, we know that wildfires also accelerate when they go up mountains and up hills, uh, and it's on the other side of a mountain range. So, well, that may seem like some kind of protection, but once it breaches the fire breaks and uh, starts to run up that hill, it will go across very easily. Yeah, it's, it's really scary because the one in, uh, in Kelowna, and I'll, we'll be speaking with Ted Farr, news director at AM 1150 in Kelowna, a little later. I've known Ted for many years. Uh, he was ordered evacuated out of his home. On Friday, but we found out that fire particularly uh, increased a hundredfold in a, in a matter of hours. Yeah, exactly, and that's that's what happens. You've got all this dry fuel, these drought conditions that are not just this year; they're multi-year, some would argue multi-decadal drought conditions that just lead to this. You've got the fuel, you've got the uh, the dry lightning, which is uh, becoming more common. This is essentially when precipitation is falling, but it's so dry that it doesn't hit the ground, and you've got the lightning and the thunder, mm-hmm. and that's what just sparks it all. You're in drought conditions, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Kamloops is arguably a semi-arid uh, desert. There's no question right. that this is a dry area to begin with. But when you have all this fuel around you, like the boreal forest, and a lot of that fuel has been damaged by the pine beetle infestation over the, the last decade or so, uh, that just makes things so much worse. Mm-hmm. Any rain in the forecast? No. <laughs> no. You can have I, some of ours in southern Ontario. has been doing nothing but rain all all oh, summer well, long. That's good news for you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it'd be nice. Uh, maybe I'll do a rain dance after we get off the phone. Okay, fine. Do one now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a musician as well. I know that. I am. I actually just wrote a couple of songs this last week. 
One of them is called Summer's Not the Same Anymore, and I was just performing it before we got on the phone, all about how summers have been destroyed by the wildfires and the smoke. Wow. And uh, it's, uh, it's a sad song, but yeah. you know, it, we have to tap into our emotions, too. Otherwise, you will blow a gasket. As Absolutely. Earlier. Please, uh, please email me the song. We'll play it on the air. Would you? That'd yeah, absolutely. Amazing. For sure. Okay, thank we'll you. We'll get you back yeah. on so you can tell us about it, and we'll play it. Yeah. Sure. That, absolutely. I would love that. So let's get at this whole issue, because along with the fires, call them wildfire or whatever you want to call them, people get so excited about a certain use of a certain word. I mean, I've been called, you know, several emails have called me the the letter that, it, that comes after E in the alphabet. <laughs> Just because right. I use the word wildfire. So, you know, look at the Cambridge yeah. Dictionary definition. You'll get it. So the, the, let's talk about the, the worst being called fudge or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us, please, what are the fundamentals about of health concern that goes along with the, with the smoke from these fires? Because it's massive. And now it's reaching yeah. across the, the continent again and arguably to different parts of the world. Yeah, I mean, it travels thousands of kilometers. We, we've seen that in previous years as well. It, the smoke itself is, is a toxic cocktail of more than 200 different chemicals, many of them carcinogenic, heavy metals. It has radioactive materials in it as well, naturally radioactive materials that are pulled up by the, from the soil and grown you know, and incorporated into the trees, wood. Uh, those kinds of things, they, they turn into dioxins and, and furans and a whole bunch of other chemicals, formaldehyde. You also get high levels of other kinds of um, pollutants like ozone, which is a really powerful lung irritant. So when you have a wildfire, you have PM, PM2.5 particulate matter, certain size. You got ozone, and you've got a whole bunch of these other kinds of gases and mixes. Carbon monoxide levels go pretty high as well. And, and when, uh, when there's a theory that if I can't taste it, uh, then, then it's not really going to be troublesome. So I'll, I'll, I'll get on my bike and I'll go for a ride. <laughs> yeah. Not a good idea. No, not a good, not a good idea. idea. We we become progressively nose blind to the smell of smoke the longer we're exposed to it. Yeah. Some of us are more sensitive than others. Um, you do have to defer to monitors uh, like the Purple Air Network, which I've set up in large parts of BC, purpleair.com, and other networks like that all across the world, basically. And you have to look at real time what's going on and make a decision about whether to go out and what you're going to do. I mean, sometimes you just have to go out and play and do things, even though the levels are a little bit higher. But you got to be careful about doing that for too long a period of time, and of course, too many days in a row. So you might take a, a period of, you know, afterwards or before of indoor rest with nice filtered, have purified air. Those are all important things to do. Okay, for the people who have to be outside and moving about, and I'm thinking now directly in British Columbia or the Northwest yeah. towards the firefighters, and you know, the people, the people who are helping with the first responders and people who are helping with evacuations. What what do they need to do, or what should they do for themselves? Well, unfortunately, they, they don't protect their lungs very well. You know, we know this is one of the reasons why we know firefighters in general have a much higher risk of cancer after a career, much higher. And um, they, they don't, unless they're in a house or an environment using oxygen and respirator masks, the wildfire fires outdoors are not wearing respirator masks, generally speaking, too hot, too difficult, and other sort of barriers. It'd be nice if we could actually come up with an innovation that would protect them a little bit better. These are young people. Uh, we know that if you have exposure in your early years, you may be able to overcome some of it temporarily, but it's cumulative. The more years you do it, the more harm it does. Yeah. When, when, I, when I called you last evening, and, and again, thank you for coming on the program, short notice, mm, you, you have some concerns about uh, 
I don't want to say lack of well, maybe I should say lack of communication about the uh, about the fires. Share that with us, please. Yeah, well, you know, the communication is is um, is there, but it's coming primarily from official channels because you know, with Facebook in particular, Meta as it's now called. Um, blocking access to Canadian news, a lot of people aren't able to post, um, you know, those stories. Uh, some of those stories are from local media, and as a result of that, you are not getting all of the details. What I really like about uh, these social media platforms is that they're much more in real time. People, for example, in your neighborhood may see a fire, they may post about it, they may pull in an article here and there, and it starts a conversation. People post pictures, videos, whatever it happens to be, and this is what people rely on. Uh, if you have to wait for official sources, like in the case of British Columbia, BC Wildfire Service, to update their website, sometimes that's uh, because they're so busy. Sometimes that can be a day later. So we really need, in my opinion, Roy, um, a new social media platform, a made-in-Canada social media platform that is specifically geared to emergency issues. Mm-hmm. And I think if we can do that, it would be a big step forward. Yeah. I mean, Meta is proving itself to be a, a big tech uh, thug outfit. Because they're not even making exceptions for what's going on in this country now. We can do without them. You know, there's that old rock song, God, I got along without you before I met you, going to get along without you now. So, I mean, okay, we... I don't, I don't know that one. But yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> I used to be a rock jock, so <laughs> oh, <laughs> all that okay. stuff is wandering around in my brain periodically. It makes it to the front. <laughs> and not, yeah. for, not for the ultimate betterment of Roy Green's life, I, I should add. But, no. Uh, no, it's a very serious issue. The, 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 we, are, we rely on communication... Communication can exist, and when big tech decides to do what it's done, kick them out of your life. Yeah, just, just take them to the curb. You know, I fully agree. And I, th- I think this is where a, a group of people, um, maybe a, as a nonprofit or something similar, yeah. should create this platform, and it should be supported by all the, the big media as well. Yeah. And uh, we should just go with it. Great idea. Do it now. <laughs> Uh, my thanks as well to Brent Poshkarenko of 630 Chet in Edmonton, our chorus radio station, who provided me with the names of, and contact information for several of our guests today, including uh, Carter Castile, who joins us now. He's a Yellowknife born and raised, and he self-evacuated from the city. Carter, um, thank you for joining us. I, I want to mention the, I mean, these fires in the, in the forests, call them what you will, uh, are, are no are not really uh, unknown to uh, to Yellowknife, but this one is is a monster. Yes. Yeah, it's uh, definitely. I mean, the biggest fire that Yellowknife has seen. Um, obviously, this is the first time we've had done uh, had to do an evacuation like this with twenty thousand people. Yeah. Um, but there has been some uh, fires uh, before um, that has affected uh, communities like Hay River and KFN. Uh, but this is definitely the biggest case that, that we've seen so far. So you left, as I understand it, you evacuated shortly before the official evacuation order was was given. Tell us about the route you took. First of all, is that correct? And then tell us, please, the route you took. And you you drove at night, yes? Yeah, so we left um, we left about a few hours before the 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 evacuation alert was given. We had um, we were in contact with a few people from the city uh, that were dealing with it, um, and they just uh, told us to pack up and go. So um, I got in the car with a few family friends, and we. We left on on that main highway, and um, it was um, it was pretty pretty backed up. Uh, there's 
like probably a hundred to 200 cars in front of us. And by the time, you know, we got settled in there, there was a lot more behind us. So a lot of people, you know, just trying to get out, um, the highway was on and off, um, uh, due to the fires that were so close to the sides. Um, the bombers had to swoop in past and kind of get rid of those fires so people could walk through or uh, drive through and, and, uh, safely. So, so as you're driving and you're driving at night on this highway and you're trying to get to Alberta, the fire is actually encroaching on the road and it takes the water bombers to back it off so you can get through. What was that like? I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was pretty surreal. I mean, just watching those big planes fly over you as you're trying to drive down the highway and, uh, the fire had, uh, had jumped a couple of days ago across the highway. So you got, you got flames on both sides of you as you're, as you're driving down and it's, it's scary, um, you know, seeing seeing those big flames and, and and having to you know close air circulation through the through the truck and and stuff just so that you can breathe so that you don't breathe in smoke, um, and just seeing like the destruction. Like I know uh, when we passed Enterprise, like there was so many buildings that were burnt down, and it's just it's 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 scary to see how quickly a situation can escalate and how much damage it can. Yeah, yeah, and and you couldn't turn around and go back, you know, because you were going one way and had so much traffic on the road, and the road was under under attack by the fire. Did you have any concern at any time that you might not be able to make it to Alberta because of the fires? Um, not for us. Uh, we we were fortunate enough to leave early enough so that we would be able to get out. Um, but I know my father, who just left, um, you know, a couple days ago. He said that, uh, you know, he made it past uh, Indian cabins and an hour later, uh, the RCMP showed up and, and closed it off. So there is still people that are stuck uh, in the NWT right now in certain areas um, that have, you know, that have no way of getting out. Um, but we were fortunate enough to leave to leave early enough to, to, to get through and, and make it to Alberta. Yeah, God, that's scary eh? when people are still stuck. At this point, have you been able to stay in touch with family and friends who evacuated after you? You said you'd been in contact with your dad, but have you been in generally been able to contact folks you wanted to talk to? Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, we've been we've been able to to, to contact people. Uh, I mean, I um, I know all my friends and, and family are uh, have left Yellowknife. Um, I have. Um, you know, my, my family who's, who was already in BC. So, uh, you know, I've been able to stay in contact with them, but, uh, the, the fires haven't really disrupted too much the, the cell service and things like that. But I know that, uh, some people still have family members in Yellowknife, um, that are first responders and just telling the stories of, of people and, uh, what's going on in, in the Yellowknife right now with, uh, with all different kinds of things. I know there was, uh, three cases of, arson that people had uh, had done when people were evacuating i know that there was reports of um you know people breaking into other people's homes so it's uh it's you know it's pretty scary just thinking like the wildfires on top of what's going on at home and how people are taking advantage of the situation yeah that's just brutal that's just awful uh, where are you? Is where you're staying in Alberta? How's that working out? We talked. We've heard about resources challenges for some of the organizations that are looking after evacuees. Everything okay for you? Yeah, no, I'm fortunate enough to have some family here in uh, in in the city of Edmonton, so I'm just staying with my aunts here. But 
I know there, there's a lot of people, you know, still trying to look for, for places to stay. And the main thing is, is, is people with, uh, you know, animals and pets. And mm-hmm. I've heard lots of different stories about people trying to get their pets, um, you know, here with them and figuring out places to stay and um, that, that support that and just uh, all different kinds of stories. So I was fortunate enough to, to have a place here with family, but I know that other people aren't, uh, aren't so lucky. Ted Farr is the news director at AM 1150 in Kelowna. I've known Ted for many years. And Ted, thank you very much for joining us. When I heard that you've been evacuated, I, I became very alarmed. I'm, I'm, I'm alarmed for everyone who's evacuated, but when you know somebody, it becomes personal. How are you? Well, we're doing okay, Roy. I mean, there are 10,700 properties in the Kelowna area that are currently evacuated and another 9,400 properties on evacuation alert. So just do the math about how many people might be involved in those uh, those properties, uh, families of two kids. Uh, a lot of young families would have been impacted. And uh, you get some idea of the scope of how many people are dramatically affected. Uh, I found it interesting listening uh, just a while ago to the professor from the university in Kamloops talking about uh, smoke. Uh, the smoke here is brutal. I mean, it stinks. It's, it's got particulates in it. There's ash and there's burnt uh, pine needles falling on our properties. Uh, a couple of days ago, we were picking up bits of bits of tree and tree bark that obviously was on fire when it came through the air. Uh, those are some of the danger zones uh, that, that occur in these kinds of fires. And that's what happened uh, from West Kelowna, embers flying across the lake and lighting up fires on the Kelowna side. So uh, that's how it spread. It's, uh, it's, the, the wind was brutal. Uh, we were talking about uh, the fire originally about 94 hectares and how it exploded to 9,400 hectares, and now it's grown bigger than that, of course. Uh, but the, the, thing, the thing exploded in a matter of hours. Yeah, you know, somebody pointed out to me yesterday when, uh, when we talked about the embers flying across Okanagan Lake. Somebody said to me, that's not a small lake, by the way. That's a, that's a large body of water. And for the embers, some of them, I think, are as large as footballs flying across the lake. That that tells you a lot about the force of the fire and the wind. I mean, that must be just terrifying. Well, it was like a blast furnace on the West Kelowna side. I mean, you had tr- trees candling. You had uh, flames hundreds of feet in the air. I mean, it was it was brutal. And for bits and pieces to explode into the air and then get carried by the wind was not an unusual occurrence. Yeah. What's the situation right now, Ted? Well, it has improved, Roy. I mean, the good news is uh, there was a news conference about an hour ago whereby uh, they had the fire chiefs from uh, West Kelowna, Kelowna, uh, Lake Country, where they've got a real problem, and uh, in the area uh, on the west side, which is where the resort, the Okanagan uh, Resort, burned down, uh, the fire chief responsible for that whole area. Every one of them said last night was was the best night they've had since this thing began. Uh, the wind was down, the temperature was down. It dropped to seven Celsius in Kelowna, so the coolness in the air, uh, more moisture in the air, all of that helped the fire suppression efforts last night. Today, we're hopeful that uh, winds in the forecast will be moderate to light and won't. Um, damage the efforts of the fire departments at all. 
Um, so uh, the, there's a special crew here in town I just want to talk about for a minute. Sure. Uh, they've now arrived from Vancouver um, involving uh, police, fire, ambulance, uh, engineers. Uh, they're the people that will go into communities and assess the damage. So we're about to start that process. Uh, and was West Kelowna Fire Chief Jason Broland, who has been an amazing storyteller all through this thing about the experiences of he and his crew. Um, he was talking about how uh, fire was stopped at people's patios oh my right God. next to their lawn furniture. Oh, my God. They were talking about, uh, you know, trying to keep homes from burning down and the effort that was going on with fire departments from all over British Columbia involved. I've seen a couple of videos today. Um, there's a, a real estate agent that I know in West Kelowna. She's been posting videos from her security camera. And the one from yesterday showed her covered patio at the back of her house, and it had the usual. I mean, it had the chairs, the cushions, the barbecue, all the things were there. And the one she showed today, her barbecue, anything flammable like the cushions off the chairs, everything had been moved deep into the yard, so it wasn't up against the house. And I saw another video today that caught a fireman actually doing that work. Oh, no kidding. eh? At a home that was threatened by fire. God bless these first responders. Well, and, and they're turning on people's sprinkler systems so yeah. that their yards are damp. Yeah. You know, you, you it, talk... It's, it's fascinating. Yeah. When you when we talk about this crew from Vancouver, I heard a news story about, uh, I think about an hour or so ago, Ted, that uh, getting support, logistical support to the communities like um, Kelowna is extremely difficult because the whole province is under a state of emergency and and what you need from an, what you would normally get from another community they can't give you because they they need it themselves well and that's that's the case in some examples still though i mean the, the number of uh, fire trucks and fire crews that are here helping in this battle uh, from other communities around the province from as far down as vancouver mm-hmm. uh, is is terrific and as the fire chiefs have said you know, tactically, they all worked off the same playbook, so they're able to incorporate these these firefighters into their plans without without issue. Oh, that's so fantastic. the coordination and the effort that's going on to save people's homes. I mean, that has been the number one priority. Uh, the coordination effort has been something else. Ted, how are people generally in in the communities? Of Kelowna well, and West Kelowna handling to, it. Yeah, I can only speak to our neighborhood. Okay. Right? I mean, we, on Friday night, uh, we had not even been in an evacuation alert. Our neighborhood is below the fire. Above us, there are neighborhoods evacuated. To each side of us, the neighborhoods are evacuated. But we've been uh, immune from all of this. So all of a sudden, Friday night at dinner time, boom, evacuation order, get out. So we did, and the whole neighborhood left, uh, except for a few. And it was interesting because there was some kind of an issue with the computer, and there was a glitch, and the evacuation order for our area was rescinded, so we all came back home the next day. But, you know, our neighbors are, you know, we, we've got confusion in our neighborhood, we've got high anxiety in our neighborhood, we've got... Um, you know, people trying to get out, and, and there's no such thing as fresh air, <laughs> unless you're sleeping right, ne- right next to a HEPA filter. 
Um, so there's just there's just people talking to each other and trying to support each other, and the feelings. I mean, there are no adjectives to describe what this feels like. That's the only way I can describe it to you. You have been a journalist for decades. Fifty-four years. Fifty-four years as a journalist. Yes. And, and you say, and I believe you completely, because I'm watching this from thousands of kilometers away, but I can't think of any words to describe. I just sit there and stare, Ted, and you're right in the middle of it. Yeah, it, it is. It is uh, I've heard it described as surreal. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard it. I mean, the anxiety level is extremely high. Um, it, it, the stress level, it, there, are, there are new meanings for the words stress and anxiety as a result of this experience. Yeah. I can only imagine what the people of Kelowna felt like 20 years ago, uh, because it was 20 years ago, almost to the day, that the uh, Okanagan Mountain fire s- struck Kelowna and destroyed 234, 235 homes on the opposite side of the lake to where we are today. Ted, uh, it, it's always, it's not morbid, but there's a great curiosity about the damage that is done by these events like this, this fire that grew so exponentially. And I'm just looking for a quote that I had yesterday, uh, the, the fire chief of West Kelowna saying, um, oh yeah, I said, firefighters faced a hundred years of firefighting in one night. What's it done to your communities? Well, you know, we, we know that homes have been lost. We know there's destruction, there's going to be devastation in some areas. We've heard the stories of the firefighters and the heroic tactics that they've taken to save properties and save important infrastructure like schools and uh, the water treatment plant in West Kelowna. Uh, But there's going to be millions of dollars of damage. Uh, the homes that were first lost were waterfront homes along the lake. I, I can't even imagine what the values of some of those homes may have been. And then you go into neighborhoods where, you know, a million bucks is almost a, a starting point to, uh, to, to land a home if one is for sale at all. And we don't yet know how many homes in that neighborhood were lost. We know that some were, but how many we don't know. So until there's an accounting done, we don't know about the physical damage to the neighborhood. The emotional damage, I'm sure, will be there for a very long time. Um, it's, it's, it, it, you have no idea what this feels like until you're in it. Yeah. Even if you've been involved in, in evacuations before, I, I know some people that have been evacuated two and three times over the years, and they, they consider themselves veterans. They seem to know what a, a grab bag should contain and where their documents are. But for us newbies that have never been through it before, uh, you, can, you can look at all the video online that you want. You can read all the articles, listen to the news stories. This is what you need to do. This is how you do it. But then when uh, the rubber hits the road, you just don't know. Yeah. And, um, and you leave things behind you shouldn't have left behind. I, I've talked to people in the last couple of days that were evacuated, and they forgot to take their charging cords for their phones and their tablets. You know, I can, I can believe that because I, another woman you just want to hit the road, right? Forgot her, forgot her toothbrush. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, state of emergency still exists? Yes. All across the uh, the province, actually, 
Um, all the communities of the Kelowna area are under local states of emergency, and the province declared a state of emergency everywhere. It just allows the governments involved to access funds and whatever else they happen to need to try to battle these things. Uh, evacuation, uh, evacuation orders are standing. None of them are being hauled back as yet. Uh, they want to get through another day of firefighting and get through some of the early assessment process and make sure that they don't allow people back into their homes and then uh, 10 hours later have to kick them out again. So uh, it, as we enter into a work week, it's certainly going to be different for very many people uh, because you're on pins and needles because you don't know. Charles Dent is a former territorial member of the Legislative Assembly, Northwest Territories, currently chair of the Northwest Territories Human Rights Commission. He's also the founder of a prominent uh, radio station and a former cabinet minister in the Northwest Territories. Mr. Dent, it's not a redundant question. How are you? Uh, I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Well, I'm fine. I'm I'm here in southern Ontario, and, and we're just watching what's what's developing in this country, and we feel so close to to our fellow Canadians who are so distant from us, but being assaulted by these fires. My, my thinking was and remains: if anyone is prepared to effectively deal with forest or wildfires, it is people and communities in the far north. You have greater experience, I think, than most anyone in this country. Um, would you support that view? And have you ever encountered a fire of the magnitude of the one threatening Yellowknife now? Um, well, one of the big challenges in the north, of course, is the lack of transportation infrastructure. So um, it doesn't have to be a huge fire before it becomes a problem for a community. In, in Yellowknife, um, the only uh, time I've seen anything quite as bad as what I saw last week was uh, in 2014. Um, we did have a the fire. The fire itself didn't get as close to Yellowknife, but the the smoke and the the pine tar, like the the trees are burning up so quickly and so hot that um, the tar from the trees actually condensed out and was raining on the city. Oh my! Um, and it uh, caused a lot of damage to cars and homes and so on. So it, it's yeah, we we often get fires, but uh, typically. We don't run into into problems like like this. You know, there's there's a, a very small population in a very large area, so fires uh, happen all the time, but they don't always happen close to communities. And this year, it's been really bad. It's been close to communities: Fort Smith, Bay River, Inuvik. Um, you know, it's and Yellowknife and Betrico. It's it's really been um, a, a challenge for the, the firefighters and for for the people. I mean, right now. Almost two-thirds of the population of the Northwest Territories is under evacuation order. Oh, that's stunning, isn't it? How's, how's your situation, uh, if I may ask? Uh, your home, your your life, your family? Well, I'm, yeah. I uh, I drove from Yellowknife when the evacuation order came out Wednesday night, and I packed up my truck, and I left uh, um, just about quarter to seven in the morning on Thursday and uh, managed to get to Edmonton by 10.15 that night, so 15 and a half hours. Uh, it was pointed out to me that uh, the bridge, it's the, is it the Daytro Bridge that was built in 2012? It's, it's proving to be yeah. massively important, isn't it? Because prior to that, there was only ferry service across the Mackenzie River. Yeah. <laughs> well, how would that work? 15,000 people out if, uh, if it was only a ferry oh, service. I know, my goodness. You no, know, there's been some... Some some people have questioned whether or not it was a good investment to to pay for that bridge, but I think 
um, it it uh, certainly proved its value this past week. Uh, some people, and uh, and I've talked to some of the, uh, well, a few people, who evacuated, self-evacuated from Yellowknife. And they're questioning why the evacuation wasn't ordered, ordered earlier and questioning how long it took to board a flight to get out of the uh, territories to Alberta or British Columbia. What, as a former member of the legislature, former cabinet minister, how do you, how do you approach that? Well, I, you know, I think, as, as you say, having been in, in politics, I've been on both sides of that equation. But it's a, it's a tough one to balance because you don't want to risk people's lives. Uh, so you've got to make sure that you're, you're thinking, you know, very, very carefully about public safety. But you also don't want to panic people and make them um, jump on the road or jump on an airplane and, and uh, uh, if it's not going to be absolutely necessary. And I think, you know, based on, on what I've seen, and, and by the way, I don't have any inside information, so I'm basing this pretty much on, uh, on what I see in the media, um, I think the the folks at NWT Fire who make the recommendations to the politicians were a little surprised at how quickly things developed with the fire around Yellowknife. Um, it um, it moved suddenly on one day quite a quite a ways, quite a bit further than was expected. And you know, since then the, we've been lucky. The weather's cooled down and it hasn't moved a lot. But I think the the way it moved that one day, they realized that that this wasn't something that could be put off. But, you know, it, it's always, the public is always going to criticize, or some members of the public will always criticize uh, the decision. It was either too fast, too slow. Um, you know, if the fire doesn't actually get to Yellowknife, I'm, I'm sure the politicians will be under significant criticism for having gotten us all to evacuate. But, you know, in terms of, of protecting public safety, I think that's always got to be number one um, in, in a public servant's mind. And you've got to you got to make sure that you're doing what you can to keep a population safe. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a tough call. And when you say that uh, two thirds of the of the Northwest Territories are under evacuation order, that that really puts it in, in, into perspective. There's some some amazing stories about uh, folks uh, taking other t- people's children with them, or or um, when they evacuated, or or their pets, and, and a veterinarian in in Yellowknife working hard to get the pets out of the out of the city. There's some personal hero- heroism that is displayed um, in, in situations like that. And these are the folks, I think, who ultimately make a huge difference because they just connect with everybody. Mr. Dander, I thank you very much uh, I, uh, for joining us. I hope your city stays, stays absolutely safe and, and that fire keeps its distance from, uh, from Yellowknife. And all the very best to everybody else in the territories. Thank you. Well, there's lots of us in, uh, in Alberta who are hoping that... Uh we can go back to our homes that, uh, and that they're not fire damaged. I know we've been watching what's happening in, in B.C., and uh, they've got a lot uh, a lot on their plates as well. It's, yes, they it's do. A real, it's not a good, a good time in Canada for fires right now. Is uh, Stephen Gilbo creating a national unity crisis? And if yes... yes. Uh, There's you, no question. Because this is the thing. I don't think the Constitution is advisory. I think the Constitution was drafted the way it was because our founders realized that we have such a geographically diverse uh, country with different endowments of resources in each part of it, different needs in each part of it. You cannot micromanage that. 
So there's uh, Premier Danielle Smith from a, from a week ago. We're joined now by the Premier of Saskatchewan, Scott Moe. Premier Moe, thank you very much for joining us. I'll ask you to respond to what you just heard from uh, the, the clip from uh, Danielle Smith, your counterpart, uh, one province to the west of you. But before we do that, may I just get a word from you on the wildfires in the Northwest Territories and in British Columbia? Uh, certainly, uh, you know, most certainly our, our, our hearts go out to everyone that has been displaced and is uh, uh, feeling lost with the, the, the wildfires that are happening in various areas across uh, Western Canada and over the course of this summer across uh, the, the entire nation in Canada. And uh, this is a time for us to come together as provinces and share in the, 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 the firefighting resources that we have, but also share in opening uh, our communities and our, our homes to host those that may be displaced for uh, a period of time. And I, I know uh, Saskatchewan has been in constant contact with the Northwest Territories and British Columbia, and we're offering uh, all of the resources that we have available and, uh, and will continue to until uh, hopefully, and, and, and we should all be praying for sustained rainfall uh, throughout those areas. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, thank you as well for mentioning the other parts of the country. The, uh, the issue of fires has been uh, dominant in many parts of Canada in the summer of 2023. Now, uh, let me just ask you to respond and react to uh, what the Premier of Alberta had to say about the federal environment minister. You and I spoke when it was really just um, conjecture, if you will, that Mr. Gilbo, Minister Gilbo, was going to be coming forward with his plan to eliminate fossil fuels from the creation of electricity by 2035, but he's moving, no pun intended, full steam ahead on this. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I agree with uh, with Premier Smith. I'm hesitant to, you know, throw the word crisis uh, around as it gets used uh, in 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 many instances. But most certainly, this is heading in that direction. This is the uh, the, the most direct assault on provincial rights uh, that we have seen in my period of time of being elected and in my uh, recent memory. And there, most certainly, uh, this among other policies, uh, many brought forward by ministers like Minister Gabo, are creating frustration in the federation. Frustration that is very real. Uh, we see in Atlantic Canada uh, with the uh, carbon tax coming in and, and being increased in that area. The clean electricity regulations will uh, impact uh, four or five provinces across the province, clean fuel standards uh, and a number of other policies. And so uh, the frustration in the Federation is real uh, and it's due largely to the fact that the federal government just continues uh, to exercise and take control away from not only provinces but Canadians. Premier, how much communication did uh, Mr. Gilbo provide to you directly on this initiative of his? None to myself. Uh, some conversations with the uh, the environment minister. None of them uh, in any way detailed. And, and this is not new uh, for uh, the, the federal contact uh, uh, to be minimal uh, in the lead up, uh, whether it be to things that we agree on, uh, or whether it be uh, in in areas like the clean electricity regulations, where um, you know we're still under the the the, the uh, belief that uh, when the federal government years ago brought the carbon tax in, that was because it was the most efficient tool. And, and and certainly they wouldn't have to do anything in the way of changing regulatory uh, regulatory um, um, regulations uh, like they have been doing each and every day since they uh, have not only introduced the carbon tax but then quickly said they're going to increase it. Yeah, if this particular plan and initiative by uh, Minister Gilbo uh, takes effect um, and you go to court and you fight it, uh, which I suspect the provinces will do, and the courts side with the federal government. And you're faced with the uh, the challenge 
of doing away with fossil fuel participation in the creation of electricity in Saskatchewan by 2035. Can you do it, A? Eh? And if you if you do do it, what's it going to cost you? Well, there's there's a number of ifs uh, before it ever gets uh, to that point. First, a big if would be uh, there's going to be a federal election at some point in time, and of it's uh, in our opinion time for the, uh, the the direction at the federal level to to certainly change course, um, and uh, and we believe that is the the simplest and the the straightforward most straightforward way for Canadians to have a voice in the direction of their country. Second, uh, there's there's all sorts of provincial uh, levels of of uh, legislation that are in place. We have our Saskatchewan First Act in place. Alberta has a a similar piece of legislation in, in place that are going to do all they can do to to halt this and to ensure that the provincial jurisdiction and this this assault on provincial rights is not allowed uh, to move forward. This is changing the landscape of our nation, uh, changing the landscape by um, folks like Minister Gabot and I would dare say the Prime Minister having a blatant disregard for not only the wording of the Constitution but certainly uh, for the spirit of the Constitution that has kept this country together for so many years. So your sense is uh, that this federal government, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I would gather your sense is this federal government is treating your province of Saskatchewan, Alberta, and other provinces with utter disdain. Uh, they they most certainly are uh, with uh, with this regulation. Uh, you know, it isn't Saskatchewan over decades has uh, developed the, the the power generation sources that we have. Some seventy five to eighty eighty percent of our power comes from uh, fossil fuels. Uh, we have made investments, significant investments that uh, have 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 shown to reduce uh, those those emissions that are coming from uh, that generation capacity most notably is our investment in in carbon capture and storage and subsequent enhanced oil recovery at boundary dam 3 unlike uh, any other project operating in Canada and so we have most certainly uh, made those investments given the the, the generation uh, mix that we have we haven't been blessed with hydro like other areas of of the nation blessed with uh, neighbors that hi- have hydro like uh, Quebec is with Newfoundland and Labrador uh, we most certainly Certainly, uh, have have uh, developed the, the the natural resources that we have to generate the electricity that we have, and to wholesale change that in under a decade, uh, and to put forward uh, these these clean electricity standards that are entirely out of the federal lane, uh, as I said, are a blatant uh, intrusion or a direct assault on on provincial rights. Uh, just simply uh, is a minister that uh, has no idea first what he's what he's doing, and secondly has no idea of the impacts of uh, his policy change and what they might be uh, with respect to costs uh, to, to Saskatchewan residents, and, and we're still Canadian residents, I might add, um, but also with respect to the reliability of the grid that we have here. Winter gets awfully cold in the Prairie Provinces. It does, and that's why we don't sleep outside. We use uh, our electricity to keep our, our homes uh, our homes warm, and we use the fuel that we produce to, uh, to get across what is a, a pretty vast geographical area. Yeah, so he wants to eliminate... Uh, Natural gas. In the same, at the same time, we shouldn't forget that the Chancellor of Germany and the Prime Minister of Japan both came to this country in recent months trying to persuade the federal government to provide them with natural gas that they need for their economies after steps they've taken caused them to run short on energy. And uh, they were sent home. They were sent home packing. They were sent packing with, a, with vague promises and assurances and a pat on the back. 
Um, they were, they were, Roy, and, and this is important for us to, to note. We produce some of the most sustainable natural gas on Earth right here in Canada. We didn't make it available to either Germany or Japan. In Germany's case, they just purchased it from Qatar and the United Arab Emirates less than two weeks later. And so they are going to get the gas somewhere in the world. We should be providing them the most sustainable gas uh, right, right from here in Saskatchewan. And when it comes to regulating uh, our own uh, costs, essentially, of, of how we electric electrify our homes. I mean, that is provincial jurisdiction. And so with respect to the clean electricity regulations, they're nice. and The federal government can put them forward and put forward their targets. Ultimately, at the end of the day, it's provincial jurisdiction. We've put forward our, our Saskatchewan plan, which is a net zero plan by 2050, which we think will be difficult to achieve, but we're committed to doing so. Um, and that's the plan that we're going to run on. So they, they simply won't apply to us because they're not provincial. And they're not, uh, the, the federal government does not have uh, the right to do so. Premier, how about uh, support from other provinces that uh, are essentially in creating their electricity without fossil fuels? And I'm thinking of uh, Quebec and Ontario. Are you getting support from those provinces? There is a good conversation that we're having, and when I speak of the the frustration that we see in the federation, there's you know frustration with numerous policies that the federal government is moving forward with. Many of them, um, most certainly, infringing in areas that have uh, that have traditionally been provincial in their jurisdiction, or are laid out uh, to be exclusively provincial jurisdiction in the in in the uh, uh, the the. the Constitution that we have. Um, there, there's other pieces. Uh, I think other levels of government that are that are frustrating um, Canadians as well. We saw some of the discussion in New Brunswick uh, around uh, parental involvement in the classroom or parental rights, and some of the the movement of of, of that province uh, followed by Manitoba. You likely see Saskatchewan follow uh, in something similar this next week. And so there, there's multiple aspects of frustration that are, are coming to Canadians and and to uh, provincial leaders. I think and. And so there is a collaboration among all of the provinces uh, that, where you'll see uh, provinces of, of like-minded working together on specific interests, like the clean electricity standard or like the carbon tax that's being introduced in, in Atlantic Canada and increased uh, here today. Um, but across the board, I think you'll see a general support and a consensus that the federal government is moving far too uh, too much into areas um, and, and really uh, assaulting what has been traditionally provincial rights in this nation. Yeah. Meanwhile, um, Mr. Gilbo is off to China for a conference of an association on environment and climate, which is chaired by the vice premier of the People's Republic of China, who is number six in the Politburo behind President Xi. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's it's really hypocritical by uh, a federal minister uh, to be <laughs> working with a, uh, a a country like China, given all of the the where the relationship has gone in in uh, you know accusations of interference uh, with uh, MP Michael Chong and and others, um, and and then ultimately to have uh, the the approach that he's taken, uh, which quite frankly is borders on, on illegal, if you consider the Constitution to be a, a legal document um, with the, the provinces and with with Canadians and in imposing the costs that he is on, on Canadians in, in the policies that he has, but then to be quite accepting of what's happening in a, in a country like China. And, you know, let, let's let's face it, in, in a country like China, they're still building coal-fired plants. Uh, they uh, most certainly are doing the same in, in other countries around the world, and I'm not saying that we should do that. But what I am saying is we should take a much more measured and reasonable 
approach to ensuring that we are not making electricity unaffordable, doubling and tripling and quadrupling uh, the cost of electricity, in particular in these inflationary times. And so uh, the fact that uh, Minister Gabot was anywhere else that uh, other than in Canada engaging with uh, his his provincial counterparts on a path forward, a realistic path forward, is troubling to begin with. Uh, The fact that he's uh, in in China, a place that uh, has nowhere near the current record that we have uh, in Saskatchewan or across across Canada uh, should make that even more troubling for Canadians. Yeah. Can I just ask you uh, about something you mentioned uh, a couple of minutes ago? Is the province of Saskatchewan uh, going to uh, engage on the issue of parental rights as New Brunswick did? I think you'll see New Brunswick uh, did a, a few weeks ago. Last week, Manitoba had, had put forward a policy in this space. I think early this week, you're going to see Saskatchewan most certainly uh, move uh, forward with uh, a type of similar policy, albeit somewhat different to, to cater to uh, what we've heard from Saskatchewan parents. Um, and I think you'll see other uh, provinces as well looking to, to enter into this space to provide some, some guidelines and some opportunities really for our parents to be involved with their children's, uh, children's education in the school. Uh, and ultimately in uh, what is happening in their classrooms. Uh, this is important, uh, and we've heard from parents uh, across Saskatchewan. And I think it's another point where, uh, although there's frustration uh, across this federation for numerous reasons, uh, there's provinces that are collaborating and working together on uh, all of the issues that, that are important to Canadians. We are going to talk about Donald Trump. He's facing indictments. And they found guilty. There's prison. At the end of those indictments, would a president, former president of the United States, ever go to prison? I don't know. There are those who say absolutely not. There are those who say it could happen. There are those who say that, look, he said, Trump has said he will, if he's the nominee for the, for the Republican Party, he will continue to campaign. Even if he's found guilty, he'll continue to campaign even if he's, if he's in prison. So then the folks take it a little bit further, and I've heard it, uh, the question asked, well, what would happen if you were in prison in prison of the United States? At this point, my head starts to spin in all sorts of different directions. I'm doing a Linda Blair exorcist impression. And, and then would he pardon himself? I, I'm surprised that my guest John Zogby hasn't already hung up. John is the dean of American pollsters. He's an op-ed writer, of course, as well, for major publications, keynote speaker, podcast host, and uh, of the uh, Zogby Report. His clients include Coca-Cola, the U.S. Conference of Mayors, St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital, the United States Census Bureau. John is the author of books like We Are Many, We Are One, and it's John Zogby's strategies. Um, John, do you find all this, what's going on with Donald Trump? to not only be approaching surreal, but rushing, crashing headlong into surreal. Yeah, hi, Roy. Hi, yeah, hi John. headlong into surreal. You know, this violates history. It violates all the rules of engagement. Yes, I suppose I can explain it, but no, I can't really understand it. Um, you know, on one hand, it's a part of... Um, you know, a right-wing populist movement that is the earth is facing. It's not only the United States. On the other hand, it is the United States, um, you, you know, which identi- has identified itself with its universal values and its long-running constitution. But, um, you know, 
Donald Trump is willing to um, circumvent the Constitution, willing to spread, you know, obvious lies. You know, it doesn't matter whether I'm labeled as calling him a liar or not. These are lies about, you know, the, the stealing of the election in 2020 and so on. But as we speak, 42 percent of the American electorate are with him. And they're with him solidly. And that, you know, gives him, um, you know, a head start. So whoever is running against him, you know, has to at least match that and then surpass it. Uh, The polls showing Biden versus Trump have them tied. A lot of that, I think, has to do with with uh, Joe Biden's. not really being able to connect his message, even though it can be a very positive message to the American people. Uh, And a lot of it has to do with the fact that there are folks that are just uh, not sure. You know, inflation, the official numbers are getting better, but they're still there. You know, they're still there. Uh, And no, the country is not headed in the right direction. Uh, Yes, it's headed in a direction that's better than before, but I don't know, you know, when you go to the supermarket or put fuel in your car, uh, whether or not you're willing to say it's getting better. Yeah, I've said, and it started out as a sort of a semi-funny throwaway line, then it became extremely serious, that inflation certainly in this country has become, when you go to the gas station and the grocery store on the same morning, John, and you can't afford to fill up at either Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's become reality for so many people. When it comes to populist yeah. movements, but when it comes to populist movements, there's a reason they exist, and they are in that people have become many people have become increasingly um, in in despair when it, when they're dealing with 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 governments that don't that don't connect to people. That's that's one of the reasons that they exist, and then they they feed on themselves, and uh, and and we have what we have, but. Would you agree with that? Would you agree with that, John? I do. Yeah, we're in a moment right now where we need to trust somebody and we need to trust some institutions to right this ship. But the problem is that uh, our scoring of institutions, our levels of trust, you know, in the church, in um, in the media, you know. It, it, Look, if the media is attacking you, that's a good point. I mean, that's 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 a positive for you because the media is less trusted than politicians and pollsters, uh, and and so we're really we're adrift right now. Yes, let me assure Canadians. Yes, it is getting better and will get better. But we're in a period right now of creative destruction. A lot of what we know and a lot of what we trust and has been familiar to us is just breaking down. You know, technology and its concomitants are just moving us more quickly than a lot of us can handle. Yeah, I spoke yesterday with one of the godfathers, so-called godfathers, of artificial um, intelligence, Joshua Bengio from the University of Montreal. And uh, the the AI developers are concerned that uh, that AI, if it's not controlled, if it's not directed, 
could turn out into being a humanity destroyer five or ten years down the road because it travels. Yeah. It's so much yeah. faster than we are, and it may make deci decisions independent of us. Yeah, I, you know, I remain hopeful about that, but I don't know. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, there is a will be a place for humans. There will be a place for heart and soul. Um, uh, and yet we're kind of in this abyss right now, um, kind of in a holding pattern. We have to get the destruction out of the way. And, you know, let's face it, a lot of that destruction is probably necessary. Not only, you know, are these institutions outmoded, but they've paused. There are reasons for why they're not trusted. So, John, if... Mr. Trump is found guilty. He's facing lots of indictments in different states. Mm -hmm. If he's found guilty, if a prison sentence is in fact issued against Mr. Trump, it wouldn't happen right away. But it's in the middle of a campaign. What would that do to disrupt American society? And if somehow, I don't know if this is possible, if somehow his pursuit of the nomination for the GOP were derailed, because of what's going on in his life officially, uh, could that happen? And if it did, what might it do to peace and order in your country? Those are very good questions. They're multiple questions. You know, um, I, I said over and over again in 2020 that Joe Biden would win the election, but Donald Trump would not lose the election. And that's exactly what happened. And he has maintained this myth that's called the big lie, you know, that the election was stolen, though there is zero evidence. So with that as a base, I figure anything could happen from there. So, yes, he is indicted and he intends to run. Constitutionally, he can run for the presidency. Apparently, and I wasn't aware of this beforehand, but apparently, if he, yes, can you hear me okay? Here you fine, John. Oh, okay, sorry. Apparently, if he is convicted, he still can run, and he still can win. Now, one of the things that uh, uh, one poll by a, a, a college here, university in the United States, revealed is that 45% of Republicans polled said that they would abandon voting for him if he is convicted. That's why I think it's, um, it's very true that he's going to try to postpone these trials as long as he possibly can. And I suppose, I'm not a lawyer, um, but I suppose he can prolong them. There are multiple defenses. There are scheduling issues. There, you know, in Georgia alone, we're looking at, you know, dozens, scores of witnesses. So it's, I guess, not likely that he'll be convicted during the campaign, maybe even not go to trial during the campaign. So that's one piece of it. I think the another piece of it, I guess, and the final piece of it, I guess, is that um, he wouldn't accept the results of a trial and wouldn't accept the results of a negative election again. So we'd be looking at an attempted coup, um, which is not likely to succeed, but throws 
uh, everything into such turmoil. I mean, will we have to call the U.S. military in? Who calls in the U.S. military? Does the current president have the authority to do that against a legitimately elected president or someone who claims he's not? Do you see this? This is more than a quagmire here. Do you see what I'm getting at? I do, John. And you and I have talked. Uh, we talked probably uh, in 2020 and since. Mm-hmm about the potential for real unrest in the United States, political unrest, and Mr. Biden has not helped himself because he's largely invisible. I, I don't even think of him as president of the United States. I can't. He shows up. I think, who the hell is that? Mm. Seriously. I mean, I don't, I, I just, I just, he just doesn't have a presence. Uh, Barack Obama had a presence. Bill Clinton had a presence. George Bush had a presence. Donald Trump has a presence. But I've never really felt that Joe Biden has a presence. And I'm just looking at you from across the border. Yeah, that, that's an interesting observation, and coming from across the border, um, you know, I, I think there is, this is not partisan, I think there's an impressive record of accomplishment, and yet at the same time, there's a vigorous effort on the part of the White House to, quote, protect the president. I, I think there's no question about the fact that as an 80-year-old man, he is, he's not at his top form physically. I honestly find it hard to find any evidence of any cognitive problem that the president has. By the same token, you want to be sure that with such scrutiny and with such intense opposition to him, you don't want the guy to slip. You don't want him mm-hmm. to fall. You want don't want him to break a bone. You don't want him yeah, to that's have it. a root. That's it. That's that's at least part of it, John. In the minute we have left, do do you do you have concerns about your society in the United States hitting a really disruptive time where people are in the streets if things go uh, badly for Donald Trump? Um, yes, I have concerns. Um, that there will be turmoil, but no, I feel we'll be all right. There are a lot of good people, a lot of good communities, okay. a lot of successful mayors and governors, um, and changes positively in policy okay. that are being made. I think life goes on. Bruce Lemessurier, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, he's 72 years of age. He's in Alberta. He was playing golf at the Nanton Golf Course. And he beat odds of 67 million to one. And what did Bruce do to do that? He scored two holes in one in the same 18-hole round. He's a 10 handicap. I'll tell you how many holes in one Bruce has in just a minute. First of all, Bruce, did I, did I pronounce your last name correctly? Uh, that was good enough. Yes, thank you. Good enough. Okay. Uh, so you're you're a uh, you're a ten handicap. You're at the Nanton Golf Course. When did this happen, and what time of day? It uh, it happened on uh, Thursday, uh, the fifteenth, at about uh, nine thirty, ten o'clock in the morning. Okay, so you got an early start to your round. Yes. Yeah. Which holes did you get the aces on? I got. Uh, we did the back nine first, starting off, 
So I got the first one on hole 17 and the second one on hole number 8. So they're about an hour apart. Yes, yeah. Tell us about the holes you scored the, the, the holes in one on. Uh, first of all, hole 17, uh, it's uh, 191 yards, and the pin was at the front. They got a water hole on the uh, left-hand side, and usually I'm out to the right. But uh, the three or four holes before that, I was bogey golf, and I teed it up. I said, the heck with it, I'm just going to go for the pin. And uh, I, I hit a shot, uh, six, six iron. And I hit the shot, and I seen it bounce in front of the green, bounce onto the green. And I I said, oh, okay, good good enough. I'm on the green. I bent down, picked up my tee, and the guys behind me said, it went in the hole. It went in the hole. <laughs> and I said, oh, I didn't see it. Oh, so, no kidding. You didn't see it. <laughs> no, didn't see it go in. Oh, Lord. So 191 yards, six higher, and you're a serious player. Uh Pretty good, yes. You're pretty good. Ten handicap. You're more than pretty good. So you so you get your hole in one, and the the word starts to spread around the golf course, no doubt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we uh, we head out to the uh, the front nine, and uh, uh, we we come upon hole number eight, and I uh, grabbed a, a nine iron and took a shot, and then once again bounced in front of the green and bounced floor rolled onto the green, and we, we didn't see it at that point. But uh, the guys were saying, oh, that, that's pretty close. That's a good shot. So as we were wa- uh, driving down to the uh, to the green, I looked at it, and I seen two white balls on the green, <laughs> but, I, but I'm shooting a yellow ball. I see. Yeah. And I, I don't, see, don't see it on the green, don't see it in front. I... I walked up, hmm, I wonder where that went. And I walked past the hole, I looked down in the cup, and there it was in the bottom. Oh, my goodness. And that was, how, what was that, 130 yards, you said? Yeah, 136. 136 yards, nine iron. So how did you feel? Uh, actually, I, I didn't feel anything. I maybe shell-shocked, I don't know. It was just, <laughs> oh, it, I didn't realize that, you know, it was that big of a deal at the time. So what were your friends doing? Oh, they were high-fiving me and calling me names. And <laughs> it's funny how that happens. The heck, you, know? <laughs> you know how the guys get on, you know. Oh, yeah, trash talk, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. that's the best part of golf. Oh, it is, yes. It really yeah. is. The trash talking is the best part. So uh, so you get to, to were there any other par threes or any more, any more, uh, yeah, par threes coming up on that uh, on that front nine? Uh, no. That oh, was that was the like eighth one. hole, you said. It was the eighth hole, yeah. 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 So word travels to the clubhouse pretty quickly when there's an ace, or in your case, two of them. Did you realize it was sixty-seven million to one against doing that? I did not know. Yeah, that's just amazing. Um, how do you feel now? You know, in, in retrospect, I I feel pretty darn good knowing that uh, I'm one of the few that got it, and with my age. Uh, yeah, you know, I'm lucky to get a hole in one. You're not lucky. Let alone two on the same uh, same round. You're not lucky. You're a ten handicap. You use a six iron from 191 yards, and you're not lucky, Bruce. You're good. But what our listeners need to know: these aren't the only two aces you've had. No, they're not. Uh, in 2018, 
I scored an ace on the same hole, number 17. <laughs> it's a friendly hole. Yes, and uh, in Drumheller, uh, I think it was in somewhere around 2015 and 2011, I scored uh, an ace each year of those dates uh, on hole number 12 in Drumheller. Oh, my goodness. So, uh, the ones the past week, I got uh, number four and number five. You know, you know how many millions of us carry a golf bag with sometimes 14 clubs, sometimes one or two too many, because uh, nobody's counting, right, hopefully. Uh, right. And, and we've never even been close. Well, we, we might have been close, but uh, here you are with five of them. You're amazing. Yeah, thank you. So I want to I want to run something by you here, okay? I don't know if he, I don't know if he's listening or not, but my one of my friends and I were playing a number of years ago. It was about 100, I don't know, 140, 150, 160 yards. I don't remember. He hits a shot. I don't know what he used. Maybe a driver, because the ball was going to China. I mean, it was going, and there was a tree just to the right of the green, and the ball hit the top of the tree. Bruce, are you with me? Yes, yep. So it ricochets off the top of the tree, and without hitting anything, without bouncing anywhere, blam, into the cup. <laughs> and he's jumping up and down, they think, hold on, got a hole in one, and I'm calling bovine excrement, I kept saying. Bovine excrement, only those weren't the words I used. <laughs> and he told me what I could do with my point of view. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and the two of us were, were were absolutely bent over laughing. But he's walking around telling the world he had a hole in one. Did he? Yes, he did. Yeah, oh, if, uh, you hit the ball and it goes in the cup. That's one shot. Yeah, but that's like hitting the windmill and going through the 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 the, the, the alligator's mouth and getting it. <laughs> it's the same <laughs> thing. <laughs> Oh man, I am so envious of you. I'm so proud of you. I'm so glad you talked to us, and I and I wish you all the best. And uh, uh, any advice to the rest of us on on what we might consider when we're on a par three? I uh, just keep plugging away, and all it takes is to one shot. Uh, I was with a guy a couple of years ago. His handicap was uh, twenty five. Yeah, and uh, on hole number eight again, and uh, he is a. Uh, a rail in front of the tee box, and okay. it's about two feet high. Okay. And this guy took a shot. It went underneath the rail, <laughs> bounced through the sand trap, bounced down the fairway to 131, 35 yards, yeah. and it went in the cup. Oh, God. As, as a 25 handicapper. So all it takes is just a one shot. Yeah. And you don't golf it. have to be pretty. It doesn't. And golf is the one game, I think, really it's the one game, the one sport, where at any given moment you can play better than the world's best player. How many other players could go to the Nanton Golf Club, PGA Tour pros, could go to the Nanton Golf Club and do what you did? Very few. None of them. Probably none of them on any given day. But you did it. Oh, it sounds good to me. <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. What's your emergency? Ah, I'm out of
cruise ship! Ah! There was an explosion! Oh my god, the ship is sinking! I can't get out! There's water everywhere! We're going down! I've got a lock on your location. Stay with me. Hurry! Hello? Are you there? Help is on the way. Angela Bassett and Peter Krause return in an all-new season of 911 on a new night. Thursday, March 14th on Global. Stream on Stack TV.